Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Martin Shaw. In Shaw's new book, Courting the Wild Twin, he writes, Here's a secret I don't share very often. Myths are not only to do with a long time ago. They have a promiscuous, curious, weirdly up-to-date quality. They can't help but grapple their way into what happened on the way to work this morning that video that appalled you on YouTube? Well, they are meant to. If they didn't, they would have been forgotten centuries ago. In our interview, Shaw invites us to consider the power of myth to guide us not only toward new ways of seeing our current moment, one in which we're witnessing an unprecedented global pandemic, but also new ways of seeing itself. For Shaw, a mythologist who's designed courses at Stanford University and who directs the West Country School of Myth in the UK, myth reveals unseen possibilities in our own lives and overlooked chances to reunite with the natural world. The old stories can lead us forward if only we learn how to hear them. Shaw shows us what it might mean to listen deeply and profoundly with our minds, yes, but also with our souls, our spirits, our very bones. Martin Shaw, welcome to the New Books Network. No, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you. Um, you are the author of Courting the Wild Twin, and I'm, I'm delighted to be able to talk about it today with you. Uh, but I want to start with a question that I think is, is very pressing for our moment. Here we are in what many of us are experiencing as a, as a global pandemic and in, in at least some of the literary circles that, that I'm a part of, I'm hearing authors start to say things like, what are, what are novels going to look like after this? What stories are we going to need to tell ourselves in order to make sense of this? And I know you have a, a much different idea of, of story. Um, it's not what is the story that we need to write now for the moment, but you have this vision of stories arriving um, from, from in the deep past. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, what does it mean for a story to arrive to find its moment? Well, that's a good question. First of all, uh, I like in in what you've just said to me, I like the sense that writers are taking the moment seriously because actually my deepest concern I notice at the moment, I've been in, you know, uh, solitude for about five weeks in my cottage up on Dartmoor in the United Kingdom. My real concern actually is not getting sick. It's that we get out the other end of this and things return quote unquote to normal as quickly as is humanly possible. That there is some great opportunity that we're not going to submit to because the memo underneath the moment, I would suggest is profound change. 
in many different areas of our lifestyle. And that is so untenable for most of us. Uh, my concern actually is that we never fully take the trip. We never fully take the the difficult invitation that's being offered to deepen at the moment. So for me, uh, stories, the, you know, you'll, you'll be getting a sense that I, as a mythologist, I have a great fondness for very old stories and a kind of universal currency in them. How can it be that a story from a long time ago feels as if it is unfolding itself right in front of your eyes in the complexities of your personal relationship? How is that? Um, So a thing that I have said almost to the point of exhaustion, almost to the point that it doesn't have any protein left in it, is many of the stories we need now arrived very much on time about 4,000 years ago. And they have moved through not just the artistry of one person hunched over a laptop, but actually many different cultures and uh, situations where the story has expanded, contracted, and deepened. Uh, Think of something like Gilgamesh or Beowulf or the Odyssey, uh, Inanna. These enormous stories are trafficking in the moment in a human being's life where they are propelled out of anything they would normally expect into deep encounters, uh, usually with what you could call the more than human. Uh, and so a lot of that is happening at the moment. This, in, this invisible thing is moving around the planet and requiring us immediately to become like little alchemists tucked away out of view in the deep interior. I think of the planet at the moment as having millions and millions of little alchemists' huts on it, where we are deprived of certain opportunities that we normally have. But the flip of that is that actually, as is always the case in these circumstances, things can deepen. So we are temporarily trading a little bit of growth for some depth. So... Stories, I think, partially come from the human imagination, but I think all artists, whether you're musicians or philosophers, whatever you do, there comes a moment when the inspiration is at its purest. It seems to be working at a a greater speed than your mind. Do you know that feeling as a writer when you're grinding away for weeks and nothing is happening, and then one night, just as you're about to go to bed, Just as you pack the computer away, you find yourself writing the words that are winged. You know, they have wings to them. And suddenly it's two in the morning. You've written three and a half thousand words. You've got to scrap the rest because they're terrible. But this moment occurred that was almost faster than any franchise you could put on it. And I think the stories that we need now, the stories that that have stuck around, the stories that we've chosen to remember so that's the thing before literature for a story to survive we had to culturally make a decision to remember it otherwise it would disappear so they're the stories that are telling us um something about the times that we're in it sounds almost like like stories are something like a deep inheritance even before the written record yeah I, I think are what, they are they gifts to us? 
Yes, I think I think they are storehouses of information. So encrypted in the images are all sorts of things that your grandparents learned or your uncle learned or your aunt learned or the, the people that were walking the ground before you learned. And so these stories are telling us something about how to live. They are a, a, a great treasury. And I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this, but these old myths and folk and fairy tales were never really designed to be sequestered in the confines of a kid's bedroom, although it's wonderful that kids do love stories. These are stories of such philosophical depth, such image-led depth. They'll walk you through almost any situation you're going to encounter in your life. And you, you have this beautiful passage in Courting the Wild Twin where you talk about how in order to, to fully appreciate the power of a story, to engage with it, um, really you have, the, you have this beautiful vision of stories being alive. Yeah. It's through the image and that we're not, we're not used to learning how to live through the image. We're expecting that instruction. We're expecting that commonplace or, or some sort of analytic guide to getting through life. Um, but the image works on us much differently. Mm. How does when when you think of of the kind of image that holds that information about which you were just speaking, is, is there a touchstone that comes to your mind? Yeah, there there are. I'll I'll, I'll go there in a second. I think that um, images have this kind of um, perpetual freshness to them. You know the difference between uh, you know an icon and an idol. An icon is something that has kind of pinpricks of the eternal in it. It has something beyond just the day-to-day humdrumness of our world. And every time we look at that icon, whatever we, and an icon can be whatever you gaze at with love and attention, I think. You know, there can be an icon hidden in the face of a child if you love that child appropriately. So I notice in my life that it's funny, sometimes people look at me, um, you know, I have a, a fairly healthy academic life but sometimes fellow you know professors or lecturers will look at me a little pityingly because I don't invest in the conceptual world in the same way I invest in the imagistic world and actually as a teacher I'm prepared to leave things hanging in the air rather than rather patronizingly say the moment a story is complete what the story of course means is because actually what's happened, especially with an oral folk tale, if you've told it well, you've left out an awful lot of details for the listener or the reader to fill in. You would have noticed that when you were reading Wild Twin, it doesn't have the kind of enfleshment of many contemporary novels, which I really like, by the way. The folk and oral tradition is designed to... Uh, short circuit your own imagination into full life and one of the ways we do that is by putting you on a deprivation diet we don't give you a lot it's not like watching a lord of the rings you know or a cecil me demille production you actually have to flesh an enormous amount out of it yourself uh, and that that in itself is part of the power of images but i think we are living in a 
ironically, with all the intelligence that the West has, there's sometimes a lack of wisdom. And one of the places where we really lack wisdom is the understanding of how people will gather around, be nourished by, um, and informed by an image. As soon, of course, as you have built a theoretical world around that, and, you know, theory is important sometimes, uh, you've moved into something else entirely. I've found that, that in your work, what I noticed when I would encounter these images, and I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to talk about the stories that are, that are in Courting the Wild Twin, but there's this kind of rush of imagination to, to bring the story into the kind of vividness that's provoked by the language. And as I sat and dwelled with the stories, what I realized is, of course, I'm the one importing that information. And so it's this way in which I'm not only conversing or abiding with the story, but also with aspects of myself that are being presented back to me in ways that I, I wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. And, and this kind of merger takes place between a story that's thousands of years old and a self that's getting the opportunity to listen to it. Mm, very, very well put. Yes, it's, it's what I was saying a second ago about secreting things within stories that short circuit or amp or, or just kickstart the imagination of the listener or the reader. You know, I uh, never want anything I do to be a passive experience. It's why at the beginning of the book, I make a distinction and say, listen, these stories are not enchantment. They're waking up. Uh, because I often have people saying, oh, I went into a kind of spell when you started to talk. I, I was enchanted by what you do. And whilst I know what they're getting at, actually, I think as human beings, we're under enspellments all of the time. And for me, a story of weight with suitable disturbance attached to it, suitable complexity, actually cracks me open. So, so you, when you use that phrase, cracks me open, you also do a lot of work with the idea of initiation, which is something that I think modernized Westerners might not immediately react to as, oh, I, I know exactly what that term means. Um, we're not really in the modern West, a culture of initiation. Um, could you tell us a little bit about about what that actually is or how you would take us into it? Because I know that, that in your work, story is a part of what it means to be an initiated human being. And I think, I think that's a phrase that might be foreign to a lot of listeners. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that issue. First of all, initiation is a vast word, and I only have a particular insight into it, which I'll explain. Uh, initiation also is always something specific. So no one can really claim as a kind of caveat that they are an initiated man or an initiated woman. What they could possibly say is, I am initiated into a particular discipline, into an art form, into knowledge of cancer, into knowledge of... Uh, mortality into knowledge of divorce whatever it is that has deepened your capacity 
that's the initiatory road that you're on. But it's not a one-size-fits-all affair. I came uh, close to the word through my work for the last two decades in Wilderness Rites of Passage, which is taking people out from cities and urban environments generally to a forest or the top of a mountain or a desert where they spend four days fasting and profoundly listening, just paying attention really to what is around them, the animals that come to them, the dreams that fill them, the tracking of their emotional states, and a, you know, a thorough drubbing really in the forces of the living world. For a moment, you're not your job. You're not your. Uh, you're not partnered to anyone other than the sun and the moon and the gully that you're in, and that usually provokes tremendous anxiety temporarily. From that can become the most extraordinary uh, moments of grace and sometimes terror. You know, initiation can't be completely safe. It can't function with that kind of civilizing aspect. You have to go away from the village, away from the town, and you've got to get rattled, I'm afraid. So initiation in the way that I understand it, which again I stress is very specific, is around a particular ritual that most people know as the vision quest. I call it a wilderness vigil, purely because I want to lower people's expectations a bit. Um, and that usually occurs yeah, throughout history at adolescence. It is usually the great move that separates a young girl from womanhood or a young man from the same. Uh, it is challenging, and actually, you know, the the issue around it in 2020 is not that we can't still have that encounter, because we can. There's tremendous forces in the wild still ready to breathe down our neck, metaphysical or animal. But the problem now, actually, is you return to a culture that is uh, actively hostile to that or has no knowledge of it. Because this experience of initiation is threefold, not twofold. It doesn't culminate in the bush. It is actually all designed to tune you up to a point where you are a functioning community member and can offer things of value and depth to others. If that doesn't happen, somewhere along the way, the experience got snarled or twisted up. It has to be given away in the end, whether it's a book like Wild Twin or it's some other kind of uh, expression of goodness in the world. So a lot of my challenge over the last 20 years is what do you do with an initiation-phobic culture who is still having initiations, whether you, they like them or not, a la now? One of the big questions that's been going on is, amongst my contemporaries in Rites of Passage, does this moment qualify as initiatory. My response is, as soon as people start to die, you're into an initiatory experience. But we need to remember several things. We need to remember, number one, what is it an initiation into? And I would query that it's going to be very different for almost every household we pass. Uh, and also the fact that initiations by themselves 
are not always successful if we lack the vocabulary to understand the information we're receiving. You see what I mean? The stories, the myths, the ceremonies, I'm sure to some people they sound utterly archaic, but I promise you, impacted in them is the nutritional information to decipher moments like this through, again, we're back to the the power of images, rather than statistics, which are going to give you a nervous breakdown. uh, The so-called facts of the matter will thin you out and divorce your soul, which is trying to step up and have an encounter with this thing, from actually really um, moving into life. You give us in one of your recent articles, so I'm imagining a listener who might say to themselves, here I am, I'm, I'm in this alchemist hut, as Martin describes, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that might mean. I'm trying to figure out the difference in a distinction you make between feeling isolated and feeling like I'm individual. And you give us this image uh, um, that comes from Siberia of the smoke hole. And that um, that one of the ways that you have access to the resources you might need at this moment of initiation, this moment, I love that phrase of being chewed up, um, which I think many of us are feeling, is is not to close the smoke hole. Could you could you describe that image for us and tell us what it it might mean not to not to close the smoke hole? I would. Um, on our lives. Yeah, I would. First of all, the image comes from an old Siberian story when a tribe are furious with a young woman uh, and they want to kill her. And they know the only way they can do that is by closing the smoke hole in her tent. And that breaks her connection to the divine world. And it means that God can't see them when they kill her. It's a terrifying image, actually. So... As soon as I knew we were under the duress of lockdown, the image of the smoke hole came to me again. And I wanted to petition everybody to remember whether you see yourself as spiritually minded or not, but keep the goddamn smoke hole open. Whatever it is that nourishes you, gives you, you know, the nutrition that we, we, you know, we're so we're so used to local produce. We're so used to food, uh, and we pay attention to where our food comes from. Pay attention to where your soulful sustenance comes from as well. You know, show a little bit of discernment in it. Um, so for me, my kind of rather uh, grandiose thought at the moment is that could you, as the listener, make the mad thought that actually this is the perfect preordained moment in your life, that you are going on vigil. You're going to sit there and really pay attention to what wants to announce itself in your life, in this deep quiet, at this moment, and actually have the courage to act on it. Uh, that's, That's exciting for me. Trust me, I live in a world where I am probably more than most up against the deep end of these questions all the time, working with people in all sorts of situations. But myself, this has this has thrown me into a unique 
set of soul searching just as much as anyone else. No one can be quite prepared for something like this because we've never seen anything quite like this before. You mentioned this this situation that that we're in where you can kind of look to the web and the the collective i think mania that is also taking place there um and then we can also look to where we are um we can look to place and and one of the things that you say about stories that i think is very powerful is that that places have stories and and you you even at, at certain moments suggest or actually to wonderfully say that that stories are kind of the voice of a place speaking to you. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that connection to place. Um, we've got so many people now that are rooted in a place in the way that they've never had to think about before. What does it mean to be right here, right now? Um, and there's a temptation to go to the no place of the web and to see that as the, the real place. Um, but I don't think that's going to speak to us in the way that we need to. And I'm wondering if you could help us begin to hear how, how the places we're in might speak to us. Where I live has the equivalent of a zip code. Where you live, I presume, has the equivalent of a zip code. We, that's, we call it a postcode. Uh, you know when you're driving along and you want to get from one place, so there's an app on your phone that helps you find, you know, C3726H. But 2,000, 3,000 years ago, where I live, people would not have orientated themselves down a stretch of river like that. They wouldn't have orientated by zip code. They would have orientated by deity. And what that means is that every little bend in the river, every particular copse of trees, had some sort of spiritual presence to them that the tribe recognized, and they would all recognize when they were coming into the influence of a particular nature-infused spiritual power. So they made their way through the terrain very near my cottage where I live, deity by deity, and they made sure that the stories they told and the gifts they gave were appropriate to that particular mood that particular god or goddess that was not a goddess of the river. She was river goddess. There's no abstraction. The river itself, in all its sensual, curling, magisterial beauty, is the goddess. Now, if we treated our immediate surroundings like that, we will save the planet. If everybody did that from tomorrow... We have a chance. That sounds wild to say it, but I think I can narrow it down to a couple of sentences after a, a few decades of wrestling with this. Is, you know, proceed in your immediate house as if you are surrounded by deities and find out what is the libation they require. Because they and you will then suddenly be existing in a very different kind of consciousness. I wrote a, a book all about this called scattlings getting claimed in the age of amnesia and it's it's infused really in everything that i've written because it is so it feels so imperative to me 
to, I suppose, you know, in a in a nutshell, to resacralize our landscape. So I, I want you to know that I, I have, after reading this book, I immediately ordered scatterlings, um, scatterlings. So I'm I'm very excited to see that 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 that's that's going to be in there. Um, so one of the things that that immediately strikes me is also that person navigating down that river would never have called the river a river. Um, that that you have this this beautiful notion of naming that takes place in Courting the Wild Twin. Um, the first place I heard it, however, was when I heard a recording of you telling the story of the fox wife. Um, and there's, there's this wonderful moment in the fox wife where the husband speaks to, to his, his fox wife and, and you prefaced it by saying, and he spoke in the old way. And then suddenly the entire register of the story that you were telling changed and the language blossomed in, in just these plumes of energy. It was, it was amazing. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this, this power of naming and, and, you know, if we, if we are looking at the world around us as not being deity filled, but in some ways deified in itself, what does suddenly the world of language and naming look like? Again, it's it's a it's a startling different landscape. Once you do that, your relationships with men and men and women utterly change. Whoever your partner is, uh, stop calling them out on their shit and start calling them out on their beauty. You know, <laughs> start doing that. Make sure every day you notice some specific part of their personality, character, physical appearance, and name it. And suddenly you're aware that this person is really paying attention to me. I'm not a hologram shimmering past them. I am something that they're really studying with love and attention. It's that difference again between icon and idol. Um, I've been thinking recently, actually, I mean, right today, I've been thinking because this stretch of river that I'm talking about, I've been walking up and down it and it has dozens and dozens of, of different names. And I think on a very practical level, if you get to know the oldest names that, uh, that stand for the, the places in which you live, Brinscombe, Dawlish, Darkstream, all these places around me, I always feel that in hidden within those names, rather like, funnily enough, rather like a spell, are the deities themselves. And as, you know, in my area, which was originally Celtic, as the Saxons turn up, I wonder sometimes if the reasons why the naming of these places began, it was, this is a very metaphorical thing to say, but I see it as a reality, was that the words themselves that the indigenous people came up with were places in which the gods and goddesses of that place could shelter in. And so every time you spoke the name of that place, the goddess lived on your tongue. It's the first time I've ever said that out loud. The, the goddess of the place lived on your tongue. And so I, something about that, I think we're all terribly 
bored and distraught and when no one can figure out why our relationships can't seem to last anymore and they last five minutes and the kids are wandering around wondering what on earth is going on. We just don't speak to each other in our old names anymore. We don't give ourselves enough loving attention. It doesn't mean you don't row. It doesn't mean you don't fall out. It doesn't mean there aren't long silences. But a culture of conviviality, a culture where language has love and inventiveness in it, re-enchants the world and it re-enchants people. I just want to turn to the first page of your book and and give the listeners a sense of that. So you could walk out to the parking lot at the end of your day with the sun already set and you could look up and you could say there's a star or you write, you could call it something like flint of whalebone, dream coin of the moon, pale rivet of the sun's own sphere, white bridle of the black riders and everything changes. So you, you've, you've, you've been around, you've been teaching stories for, for a long time now. You've met with skeptics, and and I'm imagining a listener who's starting to hear us talk about deities and place and and power, um, and and the self in in the ways that we're doing. And they might say, "This is all beautiful, but it's 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 not me. This is not my life." And I, there might be, it might not be them, but there might be a wild twin that they have. Um, that is very much understanding of of the world of story and and the the way of being that you are you are speaking about. I'm wondering if you could tell us about this wild twin that we we might all have. The wild twin is a gorgeous idea. I never grow tired of it. It's hidden away in folk and fairy tales that on the night you were born or the day you were born, you had a twin. No one tells you about the twin. No one refers to the twin. But the twin was chucked out of the window generally into the forest or into the sea or into the desert and has grown independently of you, but also in some strange way longs for your company. The attributes of the wild twin growing up in such an undomestic way are usually a kind of rather irascible, shameless, vibrant self, an effervescent self. And by the time we get into our 20s, we are often rather feeling the lack of it. We may have grown up too swiftly. We may have lost contact with reckless conversation. Isn't that a terrible thing when you're no longer reckless in your conversation? Mm. Uh, You wild ideas no longer get born in you. No subtle ideas slip from your mouth because the wild twin has them. And I wonder if part of the business of initiatory experience is actually to call the wild twin back into contact with you. And you know you're near near it because you'll start to bump into real hostility usually from the people around you because they think you're changing. You're not the guy that you were. They can't depend on you in quite the same way. There are two different stories in Wild Twin, one of which, called Tatterhood, is a story where a young girl is not parted from her Wild Twin and grows up in the full velocity of it, and that's very beautiful. But the other story, the Lindworm, is different 
that is a young man who grows up unaware that his twin is actually not another guy that looks like him. It's a black snake. It was a worm that slipped out between his mother's legs and was hurled out the window. And so by the time the lad is about 20 and he wants to marry, he goes out into the world, he goes out into the forest, and the first being he encounters is this vast, terrible serpent who says to him, older brothers marry first. He comes back to the castle and says, Mum, Dad, anything anything at all you can tell me about the day of my birth? Anything unusual? And they gradually, or they, they have amnesia, but actually it's gradually revealed there is this serpent. And that story is about the complexity and the darkness, actually, of what do you do when you recognize that you need to bring greater substance, greater life, greater strength, greater mysticism into your life again, but the knowledge that the exiled part will be hostile towards you. If you were sent into the woods 20 years ago, you have not received the milk of human kindness. So the book is really, or that story in the book, The Lindworm, is how you go about the bloody business of a more soulful life and how you uh, encounter uh, a being like the, the serpent, making a home for the serpent. And, and I suspect if there's, if there's someone who's thinking to themselves, how, how do I do it? You would point them to the story um, as, as the instruction of that. But maybe you, you could say a little thing, a little something about the other, um, the other key term in your title, which is that it's an act of courting. Yeah, it's not brutalizing the it's wild some twin. It's not sedating the wild Or twin. capturing or hunting. <laughs> There's none of that. It's not even trailing. It's courting. So in other words, the way you're going to get the attention of the twin is through beauty. You know, when I was in my, uh, when I, I lived in a tent for four years, and the one thing that I did during that time was I, I learned a lot of poetry by heart, because when I was cold in the winter, the words would warm my mouth up. You know, if you learn a Lorca poem or Pablo Neruda or Emily Dickinson or Jane Hirschfield or Sylvia Plath, you'll find that you have, um, yeah, uh, sort of Rumi, the great poet Rumi says, learn words, learn poems by heart because they die of cold on the page. And I took that really seriously. So I brought all of this ancestral archaic information into my body and I could speak it and it made me warm. So that is a way that you start to call the wild twin to you. It is one of the cruelest tricks of youth to believe that you have no teachers. It is a cruel thing for a young person to think that their generation is the greatest that ever was. Uh, it is... Um, it is a castrating, vicious thing to do that. You may think you're raising young people up by doing it, but you're not. Uh, they need to bustle up against things that are wilder and stranger and even more magnificent than anything they may have imagined yet. And that is, for me, part of what the great thread 
of real culture, which initiation is always about. Initiation is always about building or creating or crafting culture, becoming a, cr- a culture maker. That's why you need this stuff around you. So what, you know, uh, I've been counseling men of my own. I, I'm almost 50. And a lot of us at this point are having to rely on small blue pills for our erotic lives. And uh, no one warned us about this. It's just something that suddenly is happening. And so I've been <laughs> suggesting to some of the, the my male friends, I said, well, why don't you um, learn a poem of Pablo Neruda by heart and see if it works as a kind of Viagra? What happens to your erotic life if you actually have this, some of this stuff? Start speaking beauty out into the world and see what it does, see what it wakes up. Let's put it that way. I, I know you're familiar with the, the work of Stephen Jenkinson, and I'm thinking about those of us who are teachers, who are teaching a generation that's coming into adulthood, if not into initiation. And and one of the points that, that Jenkinson makes is that there's not really a set of elders, at least in the kind of Euro-West, for these these young people to look toward for that kind of guidance, for that kind of, you know, rubbing up against something that's going to to provoke something or or help something grow out of them that they couldn't get otherwise. Um, I'm wondering, for those of us who are teachers, how do you think about about our role in the lives of the the students that were were fortunate enough? to be able to to offer something to to lead well i think first of all if if you're a teacher under maybe under 60 uh you're possibly in a kind of mentoring position rather than an eldering position you know i never think of myself as an elder but i certainly think of myself as a mentor which is a kind of elder in training really um i think I think I have to say that the teachers for me that have been inspiring are not ones, as I've just kind of said, really, that continually bolster my own sense of sort of uh, wayward self-confidence, but actually they themselves embody qualities that are really exciting to me, that they are, you know, galvanized in their own life, their own practice. They still take risks um they're still curious about their own work uh, that's a very important thing for me is you've got to have a teacher whose work is still volatile to them because when you see an older woman or an older man who's still in touch with the volatility of their art you're seeing some wildness at play wildness is not you know, a men's circle where you're just bashing a drum or going into a sweat lodge or any of this other stuff. Uh, It's about curiosity. The essential thing that I look for in mentors is curiosity, number one, and number two, standards. I look for standards. More and more with my own students these days, I have to take difficult positions on things they don't want to agree with because they have our culture fetishizes imagination above everything else but has a a different relationship to memory 
But if you are a storyteller, memory and the way you curate memory, the things you choose to remember, is a huge part of where you put your imagination. So a lot of my students, when they're fresh to this, they just want to cut and paste all the myths up as if they were Play-Doh for their polemic. They don't realize that this thing is alive, that it's got a personality, that it gets hurt feelings, that it gets drum, uh, it gets uh, grumpy. You've got to feed it. Uh, so we're, you're not living in an animistic world if you think it's okay to just cut stories up every five minutes, cut and paste, uh, not with the myths and the folk tales. So my unpopular position really is is more and more a, a curiosity about my own art form, keep pushing it forward, but B, have to take the uncomfortable position of uh, holding standards. Uh, and as you mentioned him, Stephen Jenkins is exemplary uh, in that way. What are you curious about right now about storytelling? Well, if I'm, there's, I feel there's a, a particular passage in my own life that's kind of coming to an end. And I think that Courting the Wild Twin, it's an interesting book, I think, because the first half has these two fairy tales in. But the third part of the book is called, uh, I think it's called uh, Etiquette of the Underworld or Underworld Etiquette. And that has a lot of thoughts in it that I had simply never had until I sat down at the desk. Whereas the stuff around the fairy tales have been stewing in me for two decades. So where I am right now is Courting the Wild Twin and another book that's about to come out called All Those Barbarians are the summation of 20 years of teaching. In other words, if you buy those books and you're living in North Carolina or uh, Detroit or Alaska or New Zealand, you could have a small circle of people. You could read the book. You could work with the stories in a very tangible way. Now, that is wonderful for me as a teacher, but it's not so great for me as an artist. The artist in me is far more involved with Far, I have far less signposts in the work that I'm making now. There'll be three books, believe it or not, in the next year. Uh, they're all about to come out that deal with a different strand, which is me wrestling really with stories in my immediate location and also the notion of stories that challenge. What happens if I bring a Siberian story to a Devon copse? What is the counterweight in that? What is the tension? What is the bricolage that erupts from it? So what's alive for me at the moment is what I would call prophetic stories, not pastoral. And I've made this point many times, but pastoral stories affirm prophetic stories cause a kind of disruption. And we are in a prophetic moment as a culture. So I am organically led to that kind of disruption in my own work at the moment. It's interesting, actually. Um, I was talking to Stephen Jenkinson just the other day. I was right; we were writing to each other, and both of us. I think I can say without. I won't embellish it too much, but both of us have been briefly unable to write 
due to the weight of this experience. There's been so much information charging in at us. You have to listen. You can't immediately move into a proactive position. That's the problem at the moment, is that the hysteria of social media, where everybody seems to have a video camera at this moment, um, I wonder how many of us are actually sitting with the goddess of limit. How uncomfortable are you prepared to be? Because soul in the old stories simply doesn't show up until you've quietened down a bit. You get a lot of spirit, but you don't get a lot of soul. They're, they're not the same things within myth. Spirit is the eruptive moment of a great idea. You remember Obama, yes, we can. That's a lot of spirit. Now we live in a political climate where the phrase is, no, we can't. Uh, and that is very interesting mythologically because it means we are going to go down. Uh, you know, this is a time of the crow, not the eagle, really. Uh, and my concern to reiterate, I think what I said at the beginning, is that how many bodies will need to be stacked up against the barn till we really deeply listen to this situation? I, I have a deep and selfish desire to want to keep talking with you and uh, a sense of gratitude for your time and mindfulness that I, I need to let you go. And I can't imagine a more helpful moment to leave our listeners on than the, the thought that you've just given to us. I, I do hope that you would be willing to come back when these new books come out. Thank you. I'd love to. And you can decide on your own time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will do. I will, but oh. they're, they're, they're coming. This is the first place I've spoken about them publicly. So uh, that's exciting for me. Oh, Martin Shaw, thank you for being on the New Books Network. A pleasure. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Martin Shaw, author of Courting the Wild Twin on the New Books Network.